The, the way I build this, I focus on developer productivity. I think I had a shift in my approach a few years ago where originally, I think when I was younger in my career, I loved to tinker with stuff. I loved to use a lot of different tools, connect them together, but that took a lot of time. And what I do now is I try to use the tools um, that I'm most productive with, and I love using tools that are, um, they call them batteries included. Velocity is key. I just want something out of the box where I can start. My name is Alexander Alimovs, and I'm the founder of automations.io. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Alexander Alamos decided to ditch the friction and enable you to automate your processes. All this and more on Code Story. Alexander Alamos was born in a country that no longer exists. It was the USSR, or the Soviet Union. But today it's an independent country called Latvia, where he grew up. In 2008, when he was 18, he moved to the United Kingdom for school. And he's been there ever since. He studied business, and early on, he was given the recommendation that in order to make a big impact, he should start a business. Paired with this, he has always been passionate about technology since he was a young kid using tools like Dreamweaver to make simple websites. Outside of work, he likes to stay active. He loves sports and he used to do martial arts as a kid. Though he hasn't played much since the pandemic hit, he loves to play American football in the UK, strapping on his helmet and pads and playing defensive cornerback. In the past, he had held several senior positions for companies having small tech teams. During these times, he would quickly spot inefficiencies in processes a manual step here, a spot of friction there, etc. He decided to build a product to enable non-engineers to automate processes. This is the creation story of Automations.io. With Automations.io, we help companies automate repetitive work. My background in technology was that I would always um, had kind of senior positions in small companies and I was two to three people tech teams and I would always instantly spot inefficiencies in the businesses, internal operations, people doing things manually and I would always focus on improving them because I'm passionate about what I do and I always follow all the latest tech trends from the cloud to AI and whatever it is. I used to develop and hard code uh, internal business tools uh, to automate some of the processes. And then a few years back, I was involved in a startup uh, where we built a CRM for a niche market in the UK. And the way we built the CRM, we focused on the non-technical people using it and uh, allowing managers and head of departments to greatly influence the internal processes of um, the work they do. And I saw big power in that. Let's say, let's say if we look at um, a great example I use, if we look, uh, if we go back 15 years ago, if you 
needed to build a website, you had to hire a web developer as someone to code a website for you. But if you look around today, there's uh, Squarespace, there's Wix, um, so many tools where a non-technical person can build a great website without knowing anything about code. So with Automations.io, I'm sort of taking the same mindset where I, uh, we want to allow non-technical people to automate their business processes uh, without uh, learning anything about code or API, where if your business process touches third-party apps, uh, it involves your employees, um, might plug in some AI and things like that, and you can do all of that without uh, learning a line of code. Tell me about the MVP, so that first product you built. How long did it take you to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So to build the MVP, I think it took us around six months, um, six to nine months. Um, looking back, um, I think it should have been much shorter. So I'm as a, a technical person, and I think a lot of technical people have that. We spend too much time on the product trying to perfect it and um, but yeah with MVP um, it's um, running on um, Node.js it's a single page application we're running on AWS um, and the, the way I build this I focus on developer productivity I think I had a shift in my approach um, of writing code um, a few years ago where Originally, I think when I was younger in my career, I loved to tinker with stuff. I loved to use a lot of different tools, connect them together, um, but that took a lot of time. And what I do now is I try to use the tools um, that I'm most productive with, and I love using tools that are, um, they call them batteries included. Uh, so for example, like Ruby on Rails or Ember.js, it's tools. <laughs> it's it's tools where you just get everything out of the box and you just focus on the product. Because as a founder and a solo founder of a business, uh, velocity is key. I don't want to spend time picking a, a router version for my SBA or a testing framework or whatever it is. I just want something out of the box where I can start writing code and get value out of it very fast. So you're, you're building an MVP, you're getting it out to the market as fast as possible. Um, you have to make certain trade-offs, right, and decisions in early MVP of feature cut or technical debt, accepting of technical debt. Tell me about some of those that you've had to make and how you coped with them. Yeah, so with MVP, um, I think originally when you start, um, developers always underestimate time it takes to do something. So, of course, I started with grandiose plans and I had to cut them off. So, one of them was um, around having uh, more of a kind of CRM uh, contact management features in the automation platform. Um, but then I realized is that as we're building the MVP, it, it wasn't core to the product and it was distracting um, from um, getting product to the market. Um, 
at that time uh, it was a nice to have and it, it is still a nice to have uh, we still didn't get back and build it so i think with mvps you have to understand what is the core of your product and once you understand that build it and try to get customers or potential customers involved as soon as possible so you get that feedback loop because the worst thing as a founder you can do in the early stages is build things no one asks you to build and you think they will be the best next thing and quite often they end up not being the next best thing so in 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 the vein of what you just said with the next best thing tell me about how you're progressing your product right a little more detail on how you're either building your roadmap or thinking about building your roadmap and deciding what is the next most important thing to build so the way um, we look at roadmap right now is um, it's purely driven by customers so we're very early stage in our journey and the key for us right now is to listen to our customers and get their feedback so as a solo founder i spend too much time building product and not enough time marketing and selling it so what i'm forcing myself not to do now is to develop and code the only time i'll start coding and developing now is based on customer requests and feedback and the other time um, i focus on speaking with the customer growing the product. So the roadmap right now is purely driven by feedback. So how are you how are you gathering that feedback? Is it sort of manual right now? Um, it, did you build something in the product early to get that feedback to you? Or are you staying really close to your end users? So I like to stay very close to our users. I try to get pretty much with everyone on a phone call and just get the live feedback from them. Um, what they like, what don't, what they don't like, things we can improve, maybe it's something they didn't understand. And when you speak with customers, um, you see things you might have not even thought um, are possible. Some things you think, oh, this is very easy to understand. And you speak with that customer and they say, I don't understand what this, what this is. And it gives you a very different perspective on your product. And I think the key is having, in the early stage of the business, having those interactions, live interactions with your customers. So let's flip the team. And I understand you're, you're a solo founder. And so right now it's just you. That makes sense in the, in the early days. But I assume as you gain traction, as you start to grow, you're going to want to build a team. So tell me about what you are going to be looking for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you. I've been looking at their um, skill levels and passion. I, I enjoy working with passionate people. Um, for me, what I'm building is a 10 plus year business. Even though we're bootstrapped, we're early, early stage business, um, we had already acquisition offers and I'm saying no to that because I want to build this business and I want it 
to be one of the best places uh, people can work at. I'm not doing this to earn money. Um, I'm doing it because I enjoy it. And I want to hire people and work with people that would enjoy doing this. And I want to make sure this would be one of the best companies they work at. We'll switch to scalability. So, you know, it's early days right now um, for you. How are you approaching scalability? And, and did you set out to build this to be scalable from day one? Or are you going to be fighting this as you grow? So my background is I've done a lot of AWS um, consulting. I think I started using uh, the cloud and AWS in 2013. Um, and ever since um, any systems I designed, I always had scalability in the back of my mind. And it's same with this product I'm building as well. Um, we are running 100% on AWS. Um, have some serverless uh, infrastructure there. Um, so I don't see scalability being an issue in the foreseeable future. I think it will be as we scale, but at this stage, I think we have um, an enough buffer uh, for quite a lot of customers to use um, the platform and it should scale uh, nicely as long as AWS does their I hope they continue to do their part. Otherwise, the whole internet's going to have a problem. <laughs> We've seen that. So, so that's cool. So you've got you've got the background of scalability, or you've got some you know tools in your tool belt to do uh, to make sure solutions are scalable. Is there anything in the architecture itself um, as far as? Um, domain design or anything like that that you've done to make it scalable on the inside as well? Um, or is it primarily infrastructure? So our tech stack is we have a um, single page application in the front, just serving HTML and JavaScript. We have an API server uh, running on Node.js and it's Dockerized running on Kubernetes cluster. And then a lot of the heavy lifting is done by, by the serverless um, lambdas on AWS side. So as a business using our tool and the automations you build, the execution of those automations will be handled by AWS. Um, so you've got that scalability there. So you mentioned Lambda. So it sounds like not only are you scalable from an infrastructure standpoint, you're sitting on AWS Kubernetes with containers, you're able to you know, potatize essentially your your backend or your infrastructure um, in Kubernetes. And then you're also using serverless with Lambda. So any heavy lifting you need is all is all 100% reliant on, on AWS. Is that right? Correct. And um, the way the API and serverless work is that API is sort of our control plane where you define your automations. So Nothing scalable, highly scalable needs needs to be there. Um, so the whole heavy lifting is done by Lambda and serverless. So if you run your automation a million times a day, there'll be a million Lambdas running on the serverless side. Um, so all the heavy parts of the, kind of the infra infrastructure and scalability is on AWS side with again, uh, Lambdas, uh, 
SQS um, and services like that that are technically infinitely scalable because they're the backbones of AWS itself. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built, what are you most proud of? Funnily enough, it's the UX. So I'm not a designer myself, but um, with time, I, when I was younger in my career, I thought I'm a good designer. So I was building and designing things from scratch and they were always ending, ended up horrible after weeks of work. So early on in my career, I learned I'm not a designer. Um, but with the product I've built, I'm actually proud of what I have. And I've taken a different approach. I've, I've used existing tools and designs out there uh, built by great designers and, and artists. And I just used everything together and mixed it up and built this, this UX that I think looks very cool. And we get a lot of feedback around its simplicity and how easy it is to use. So I'd say, yes, it's UX, one of the most biggest things I'm proud of here. So let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, how you responded to it. <laughs> so one of the mistakes I made, um, as I mentioned earlier, as a technical person, you spend too much time in the product. And uh, we released, um, our, uh, we came out of beta uh, about two, three months ago. And what I'm doing today is I'm 99% of my time, I'm focused on growth and acquiring new customers. And the mistake I've made is I believe what I'm doing today, I should have been doing about six months ago. So let's talk about the future then. So what does the future look like for your product and for your team? So the future for us uh, looks, uh, we want to stay bootstrapped. Um, for me, uh, as I mentioned, this is a long-term uh, business. Uh, it's not a kind of get-rich uh, scheme, raise money, and then try to exit as fast as possible. So it's a 10-year plus uh, business. Um, my focus right now is increasing revenue numbers, um, getting more customers, and then growing the team. Um, so I'm looking to start hiring people on the sales side, but also on the technical side, and start building things that we cut out from MVP and uh, have them in the product. I like that. How, how big is the backlog from MVP? Oh, backlog is huge. Uh, there's lots of ideas uh, where to take the product um, because the way I see what we're building is, um, to some extent, you, you could call it a visual programming. So the way we allow um, users of our product build automations, it's, it's very visual. So it's like a business process map. And you don't re really need to learn anything to understand uh, a business process because it's just one thing goes to another. There's a line to second thing, etc. So to some extent, sort of becomes like a visual programming. And as I was saying earlier with the Wix and Squarespace examples, is that you can build great websites today without knowing how to code. And what we're doing here with automations.io is technically allow business users to visually program because you 
can build a process where you connect um, tools, AI, and your employees into one process, um, and they can start using it. So um, there's a great example. We um, had an inbound lead uh, last week, and they are a, they're a French company that serve English and uh, French customers, and they have a shared inbox they receive inbound email. So what they wanted to do is detect the language of the inbound email and then reply with the correct language template. So one of the things we added, um, even though it's trivial, it's still classified as AI and natural language processing. So we added a feature where you can build an automation and it would detect the language of the incoming email of the text, and then you'll do an if statement visually and then reply with the correct language template. So for a technical person, these things are trivial, but if you step back and think about it, we're basically allowing now a non-technical person to start using AI without even knowing anything about AI. They don't need to be a data scientist. They don't need to learn about what is an API or machine learning. They just get this canvas and then suddenly they can visually plug in AI to their business process, which I think is very cool. Well, let's switch to you, Alex. Who influences the way that you work? You name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. So the person I look up to is, uh, I would say, is Dan Martel. He is the serial SaaS ent entrepreneur from Canada, and he had a few successful exits. and. He is at that um, stage in life where he's sharing his learnings and experiences nonstop. So I found his um, I find his content and very invaluable, and the way he works and looks at things is very helpful as well. So he is a technical founder himself originally. So the way he describes things is very applicable to myself as a technical founder um, because some of the things I don't like um, when you learn um, something on the internet um, there's a lot of content that's very um, theorized sort of they talk about in theory about something whereas with Dan Martel uh, because he's, he's got technical background it's very direct to the point uh, for this problem you need to do XYZ and he's done that he's proven it works it's successful so I enjoy that, uh, consuming that content uh, that's very straight to the point. Um, so, yeah, today I look up uh, a lot to Dan Martel. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit, a little bit different spin. And I, I know you're early on in this, so this, um, this may be similar to what you've already said. But if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? If I would go back in time, I would tell myself to stop coding and developing and go out there and don't be afraid to approach people, um, ask them for their advice. So one of the great things I've learned, um, how you can build a product um, and get initial feedback is just approach people for an advice. Um, people love um, they're, when they're approached for an advice and they love to share their knowledge. So some of the things I've done is I've just um, opened up LinkedIn. I searched for 
relevant people for myself and I reached out saying, hey, we're building a startup in the area. You're an expert at what you do in your industry. It'd be great uh, to get your thoughts and feedback on what we're building. And through those discussions, we learned a lot um, and it pivoted the products uh, slightly to one way or another. So going back in time, I would say I should have done that earlier. Um, I should have put my keyboard away and just go and speak with people, get their thoughts, get their feedback, uh, because this would this also helps grow the company uh, faster because you're getting that feedback. Some of those um, customers, you ask for advice, they learn what you do, they're interested in what you do, and then they get converted to customers as well. So I think it's very important for startups, early stage startups, is to speak with people, and the sooner you speak with your potential customers, the better. Well, last question, Alex. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I would ask them, what is their go-to-market strategy? And if they tell me, I'm just going to post on Product Hunt and it's going to grow like wildfire and everyone's going to start using it, I'll tell them they're probably going to get burned. So the advice I would give to a lot of uh, people building their businesses and startups is that you have to think about who are the ideal customers of your product, who do you want to sell to? Because often we, got, we get sold on this idea that if we build, they will come, but 99% of time they don't come. So if you don't spend time being out there, whether it's marketing, sales, or speaking with customers, potential customers, you need to focus on your go-to-market strategy. And this is very important. Well, Alex, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of automations.io. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>